What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with another pod. We're in the dog days of summer right now, but it's still what's going on in pop culture right now. Thankfully, there is some stuff to talk about. Talk about the Apple TV Plus Idris Elba thriller series Hijack. Definitely one of the TV surprises of the year. Of course, Winning Time Season 2 back on HBO. Love the first season. Only Murders in the Building the mystery comedy series on Hulu back for season three. So I think three notable TV shows to get into here. Uh, Some music from TDE rapper Reason, his second album, and No Name, her first album since 2018. Very exciting. And also a new video game movie from uh, PlayStation, Gran Turismo. So yeah, you know, it's an August pod. Not the heaviest of hitters, but some stuff to get into. So make sure, of course, you hit the link below, linktree.com slash nostalgiapod, youtube.com slash nostalgiapod, and subscribe any way you can, please. And of course, also see the link below for the best of 2023 Spotify playlist that I'm updating every week with my favorite songs of the year. And yeah, let's get right into it. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Reason's second album, Porches. Yes, Reason, the Top Dog Entertainment rapper back with his first release, first album since 2020, been a few years. Reason, I think notable, of course, for being signed to TDE, which in and of itself is notable, but also, you know, I think being one of those rappers that had kind of a later in life come up and breakthrough, you know, not really making noise until his late 20s, then breaking through, getting that signing to TDE, etc., and, you know, since that time, you know, obviously Top Dog Entertainment has kind of moved into a new uh, direction era, obviously, with the departure of Kendrick Lamar from the label. And Reason has, you know, been, you know, one of the more recent signees that has made some noise. And I think he's largely positioned alongside Dochi as, you know, a standard bearer, a, 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 someone to carry the label into the future you know who knows how long SZA and Schoolboy Q have on the label as well you know and Isaiah Rashad not the most active artist so yeah I think a lot's kind of been placed on Reason and I think a lot like you know some of his TDE peers you know he's not someone who's going to make big hits and totally break through but I do find him as a pretty interesting artist I think you know if I think back on his last album new beginnings from 2020 it was like pretty solid pretty good because reason you know to to his credit the reason why he was signed very skilled technical rapper very competent he has a pretty nice like kind of gruff persona on the mic uh he's nice to listen to i think what holds a reason back from like hitting that next like level up is that reason is perhaps not like there's maybe like an it factor missing you know and i think What's nice about Porches, which I think is definitely better than the previous album. I, li- I like Porches. I think what's nice about Porches is this is probably the most effective reason has been as a lyrical artist, you know, especially when he gets uh, introspective, speaking about himself and like this, getting into that storytelling bag a little bit. I, I was quite compelled. If I had to made my biggest criticism uh, of Porches as a record is just that it's a bit long, 17 songs, 57 minutes. It's too much. If we cut this down a little bit, I think it'd be quite special. Um, or maybe not special, that's a little strong, but it would just be a lot tighter and I think a lot more fun to be with, you know. What's also kind of uh, admirable about Porches is that Reason kind of jumps around, you know, sonic ideas and stuff. You know, there's like G-Funk on here. There's, you know, like choiry vibes, some traditional jazz rap that we'd associate with like a Kendrick style rap song. It goes a bit around, moves a bit around, and it's pretty interesting, I think, under the hood with the production. So I give him credit for that as well. Uh, but yeah, just kind of jumping into the song list here, uh, I thought the second song, Caucasian Estates, which is an amazing song title, uh, the beat drop there's super hard. I love that. The next song added again, really awesome drums. Um, then track four, A Broken Winter Break, featuring Sir, also on TDE, and uh, Killin'. A Broken Winter Break is the best song off Porches. That is a classic like G-Funk song. The kick drum, the 
keys, amazing track. I love the storytelling uh, style you get from Reason on this. Definitely his best like Kendrick impression to me, but also like really nice features. Like there's just a lot of like warmth I think to that production. I really like that song. Definitely something I immediately revisited on the record here. Uh, you are uh, going through the tracklist some more. You know, uh, send you to the afterlife exclamation point. I've really liked Reason's performance on that. The bass is nice, but uh, Reason kind of like switches up his delivery halfway through, really showing his mic skills pretty good. Uh, I also quite enjoyed Gina, parentheses August Alcina, uh, kind of a funny uh, song title there. Just really nice flow from Reason on that one. I like that one. Uh, Too Much is, again, like a, an example of like a bit of a sonic uh, change where very soul flow song. And that's where you get like, really awesome flow from Reason, but the, probably the most introspective personal lyrics on on the album, on Porches. Uh, Bussin, exclamation point, WB part two. Really gloomy keys. Really hard. I wouldn't say it's drill, but the keys maybe would remind you of it in a certain sense. Uh, Family first, towards the end, also with Sir, and also Zakari from TDE like that one as well yeah i think it's pretty solid you know i think reason he's probably an artist that will float under the radar uh in terms of the rap world you know he's not mainstream he's not super popular he's not a hit maker but if you give him the time and listen to that stuff there's stuff to like and if you're a tde fan it makes sense you understand why reason is on the label so even why maybe the ceiling is not as high as the ceiling we associate with some of the most famous people to grace, you know, the halls of Top Dog Entertainment. That's okay. He's a pretty solid artist, pretty solid rapper. Uh, I was happy to listen to Porches. Let me know what you thought of Porches, though. And for more rap reviews, subscribe. And I'll see you next time. What's up, Well, my Nostalgia? Dave here with a review of No Name's second album, Sundial. Her first album since 2018's Room 25. It has been a minute for No Name. No name, not the most uh, mainstream rapper, but certainly one who's got a lot of love and attention since that first mixtape, Telephone, came out back in 2016. People uh, that are into this type of music are very into No Name, and for good reason. She is a very intriguing, lyrical artist with a unique voice and a strong point of view. And it's been, you know bit disappointing that we haven't gotten as much music as we would have hoped from someone who got a lot of love and attention really once she broke through five years since the last album finally got sundial not that no name had necessarily gone away she's been of course very active online speaking her mind on her personal politics and views on things she's very outspoken very committed to what she believes in a very liberal um sometimes socialist outlook on society and culture and uh, consumerism and capitalism and things of that nature. And she's very, uh, I think, very adept at being an advocate for her causes. And that is, it kind of engendered her to a certain type of fan base as well. You know, maybe like a specific subculture, you know, within her fan base is interesting. She's um, definitely unique in terms of an artist that people are checking for because people like the music, but then she's also quite that outspoken, kind of really going against the grain in terms of a lot of her peers in hip-hop. And, you know, it's been, I think, probably like the most notable thing from the music side of things. Obviously, she's done a lot of, I think, um, kind of like activist stuff with her book club uh, initiative and whatnot. But, you know, a few years back, she kind of clapped back at J. Cole who had a kind of a chauvinistic response to something she had said. Um, anyway, No Names, Sundial, 11 songs, 32 minutes. It's a really good album. And I think what's really good about it is, despite that brief runtime, No Name, just because of how lyrical, how how intelligent she is with her, with her rapping and her writing, is able to, I think, weave a lot into that short runtime. She has a lot to say. And because she's so skilled, she says it in a very interesting way. I think what really sets her apart, she's hardly the only person to like, you know, share opinions in rap or anything like that. But No Name stands out for being 
unafraid to really speak her mind and like flame people and like not take prisoners. And what I think makes it so refreshing from No Name is that she fully acknowledges that she also has personal flaws and contradictions, and she will do and and put her herself on blast right after calling out somebody else more famous than her. And I find that very refreshing that she is as self-aware as she is. And I think it just comes across really well, you know, just kind of going through this track list here, like thinking about like the songs, the things she talks about, you know, I think the song that probably is the, I think best example of all of this would be towards the middle of the track list, Namesake, where no name, you know, calls out rappers supporting the NFL, like Jay-Z and, people performing at the Super Bowl like Kendrick and Rihanna, you know, as the NFL props up uh, the military with the jets flying overhead, things of that nature. You know, throughout this, she's definitely a critic of consumerism and capitalism. And, you know, she, uh, on that song, though, I think was really cool about it because right after she flames people for associating, associating with the NFL, she also acknowledges her own faults where she said that she said she wouldn't perform for Coachella, but then she just did that this past year and she's like fuck you know compromising herself for the money and how some people you know will quote sell out for the money and that's also okay people got to get paid and like she, she kind of acknowledges the gray area and the messiness of a lot of her points of view and how she don't fits into all those and i think the fact that really it's she's not painting things in a broad brush it's not being painted in a black and white way um it'd be awesome if more people thought, like expressed their feelings in such a way you know, um, I think another interesting way she frames things is, um, you know, I think she's pretty dedicated as a critic of consumerism where um, just because the people winning are black doesn't mean it's okay if they're just kind of selling out and like pushing, you know, like uh, corporate shit, you know, um, again, refreshing point of view. Um, she kind of, what she, she has, a, she flames Obama on this, which perhaps is a bit of a low hanging fruit. Nonetheless, she does do it. Um, and also, I think something else she's pretty consistent with is uh, struggling with white America's like open, continued access and relationship with black culture. No name definitely feels very protective of that. I think she really gets right into this too, like around the beginning, just the song, second song, Hold Me Down. Um, track three, Balloons, features J Electronica, J Elec. Obviously, we know Jay Alec, how talented he is as a rapper, but he's really wiling on this rapping, uh, really grabbing people's ears, you know, referencing Farrakhan and uh, bad-mouthing uh, Zelensky in Ukraine, things like that. Um, Jay Alec also recently has really kind of been exposed as a kind of blatant anti-Semite, you know, honestly more egregious than anything Kanye has done, to be honest, because Jay Alec seems really, really about that shit. Um Interesting, though, that I didn't really put this together myself. I saw someone else make this observation. Interesting, though, that No Name, so critical of Jay-Z, would then work with someone so closely associated with Jay-Z in JLEC. Nonetheless, contradictions are uh, present. Also, like, No Name isn't afraid to get super personal. I think one of the best songs on this is Toxic, which is really just about No Name shitting on a dude who, like, she had was in some kind of relationship with and things went sour like just the way she goes about that though she's just so talented um beauty supply also really nice love the call and response to that understated delivery that's more about you know like her own struggles with you know beauty standards uh that society puts on uh her you know interesting uh gospel featuring silk money billy woods and stout billy woods sounds great on this of course, that song has a choir with that title. Why wouldn't it? You know, sounds awesome. Uh, Oblivion, the last song with Common. Really like the switching up of deliveries on that. Really nice bass. I wasn't sure if that was Thundercat. Definitely reminded me of it, though. Just in general, like, I think the production on this is so textured, so layered. And, like, it's just a nice fit with someone like No Name, who, as I've been going in, she's been saying a lot and, like, has a lot to get into and say and really, like, analyze and think about. But also as a rapper, like she has a kind of a unique voice where she's just kind of like really light on her feet, light on the mic, but it still kind of grabs your ear, grabs your attention. Just it, it, it's a bit of a unique delivery, you know. Even though it doesn't like beat you over the head with it being like super aggressive or like hard or anything like that, just she has I think and just a lot of unique qualities. And 
yeah, I mean, it's not necessarily like Sundial has like anything that's like a hit. Like, I don't know if I want to revisit too many of these songs. You know, like this is all a pretty far cry from Diddy Bop off Telephone, which is is as the name suggests, a actual bop that No Name made. Love that song. I don't think we have anything quite like this, but as a total body of work with something to re- real to say, it's pretty impressive. And I think definitely one of the best rap albums of the year thus far. So shout out No Name, shout out Sundial. Be very interesting to see what's next for her, whether we have uh, this long await again for music. Uh, no Name often considers like, you know, leaving music behind, you know, and she definitely is someone who probably beats herself up over a lot about like, you know, ethical consumption and her place within uh, the things she criticizes, the institutions she criticizes, right? So uh, hoping she can find a way to continue to be an artist because she's definitely a compelling one. We'll see what happens. But let me know, how did you feel about No Name's Sundial? How are you feeling about her as an artist? these days and for more rap reviews subscribe and i'll see you next time what's up well my nostalgia dave here with a review of only murders in the building season three the hulu comedy series the most successful hulu comedy series back for its third season steve martin martin short selena gomez our trio is back to solve another murder in the arconia in new york of course this is a series that kind of came out of nowhere back in 2021 became a big hit and for me i've always been kind of lukewarm on this show but it's still quite easy to watch and be with it's pleasant it's nice it's it's an easy watch and i think for me the one thing i've always had to get over is it's not like that funny of a show it's not a laugh out loud show it's a far cry from like what we do in the shadows for example speaking of hulu despite all that it's just kind of fun to be with these characters and even if Things are kind of treated with kid gloves, and there's not a lot, a lot of negativity or true conflict to the show. It is kind of nice, you know. Obviously, kind of bust out as this nice, like meta, like parody of like true crime and the, the meta commentary that 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 ensued. But now, I think it's just kind of about like the twists and the plotting. But it, it has like a solid heart to it, and I think that has to be the appeal if you're watching the series. Season two ended with. Oliver, Martin Short's character, Oliver, his play, The Death Rattle, uh, opening night, their star, Ben Glenroy, played by Paul Rudd, dies on stage. And that is our, our hook for season three, right? A death outside the Arconia. It was a murder outside the building. Just kidding, of course. Season three, episode one, we find out that uh, Glenroy manages to survive uh, that he gets revived from the stage and he dies actually in the building pushed through an elevator shaft at the end of the first episode or second episode whatever it was two episode premiere on hulu and yeah we're back and i think what's fun is paul rudd's bringing nice energy as his actor um character kind of like a gregarious uh high maintenance famous actor and through all the flashbacks we're going to spend a lot of time on Paul Rudd, and that's pretty fun. You know, in the, in this premiere, we flash back, you know, four months in the past to the first table read for the play. And, you know, just it's fun to be with Paul Rudd. Also, his character, Ben Glenroy, is <laughs> has, has a role in his past called Cobro. And it, it's just a really funny, like, again, like, meta, like, homage, uh, or not, I don't know, not homage, um, meta like lampooning of uh, Rudd's own career obviously of course playing Ant-Man it's like a very similar like self self-own from this show I fit, fit, fit right at home to me uh, Ashley Park joins the cast as someone involved with the play Jesse Williams uh, joins the cast as like a documentarian character for Paul Rudd's character it sounds like Jesse Williams and Selena Gomez will be spending a lot of time in the season together and of course the big name Meryl Streep Returning to television, I believe this is her first series appearance since Big Little Eye Season 2. Meryl Streep joins the cast as a actor in the play called Loretta. And Meryl was pretty good in the start. You know, obviously show, showcasing her accent work, which she's been famous for for decades at this point in, in this premiere. And yeah, definitely ratcheting up the star power with Rudd and Streep. And even someone like Ashley Park, who I'm a fan of, who's having a nice year with... uh 
you know, beef and joyride thus far. And yeah, I guess I'm just kind of like on board for the ride. Like the, the, like the conflict to me is like so light that I just try and like, it doesn't really like register for me. Like, Oh, Mabel's moving out of the Arconia. Something tells me that that's not going to come across any meaningful way on the series because these trio of characters the actors who play them are executive producers of the series, so we will be seeing Mabel a lot, I would still imagine, if that she does in fact move out. I don't think that matters too much to us. Uh, Howard, who we know from the ensemble, is Oliver's assistant on the play. Nice way to keep him involved. Um, yeah, I think just like... It's just kind of nice to be with the group, I guess, and Oliver has gotten less grading as a character through the run of the show thus far he used to be a very annoying presence to be with as someone who's super over the top but also kind of unreasonable um charles you know steve martin's character pretty nice pretty kind fun enough and selena you know i it's it's never her role as mabel has never been my favorite selena performance i actually think she's like a pretty solid actor but the mabel character just kind of introverted in ways that I feel like kind of mute Selena's natural charms as a performer. Nonetheless, I enjoy the series for what it is, even if I don't really love the show. And I guess season three seems to continue that. And I'm interested in it more than previously, just because there's some extra big name actors involved. So we'll see if they reinvent the wheel um, in any way. Not too sure, but I'm sure the twists will be fun enough. You know, they always, you know, the rhythm of introducing a new suspect to the audience and to our characters and then kind of clearing that, that person's name and keeping you going. It's a nice way of keeping you invested. And even if I think ultimately like the first two seasons who ended up being the murderer was largely besides the point and some of the least memorable stuff about how the series was going. So it's more a journey than a destination type of show as well. I expect that to continue, but yeah, season three, it's back two episodes out. Of course, it's a half-hour comedy series. Very easy to watch still. But let me know. How are you feeling about Only Murders Season 3? Anything you're looking for in Season 3 as a change that you want to see? And for more TV reviews, subscribe. And I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Hijack, the thriller miniseries on Apple TV+, Plus, starring Idris Elba. I would say easily one of the surprise TV shows of the summer. Probably the number one surprise at that quite enjoyed this obviously came out of nowhere for me i think came out of nowhere for a lot of people but honestly a nice little w for apple and i'll spoil everything to follow but yeah i thought it was this was pretty good uh seven episode mini series from george k and jim field smith george k should sound familiar he of course brought lupin to netflix the french you know detective series with omar c and you know, you have that pedigree. Apple spends a lot of money on the shows they do make. Looks great. And of course, starring Idris Elba, one of our great stars we have today. Also has a few other familiar faces, such as Archie Punjabi. And yeah, I think it's just a great example of executing on a tried and true uh, format or premise. This is not just a thriller, but it's a thriller on an airplane. This is about a plane hijacking in modern times. And that is just, you know, something people like. You know, it's a very compelling, very thrilling, and when done right, it's going to entertain. And, you know, I mean, thinking about movies like Air Force One, whatever you think of, it, like being with a hijacked plane and putting yourself in the situation of the people, uh, you know, you're seeing on screen, that is, I think, a really just compelling premise to have about something. And... Of course, when you have Idris Elba as Sam Nelson, your lead, Idris, I think, obviously, he's been a star for, you know, some time now, right? Probably almost 10 years. People know him. The Wire, Luther, movies. Idris Elba's, one of his best strengths is just his sheer presence, right? And in this case, he's not playing someone who's all physicality. He's playing like a thinker, a strategist. His character is literally a corporate business negotiator. And his character, Sam, has to try and figure out how he can manipulate and subvert and thwart the hijackers who have taken over his plane. And 
solely for his own self-interest, right? To make sure that they don't all crash and die, right? Whether it, and I think that, that that is broadly compelling, but Idris is really good at carrying this as a as a series. Um, you know, I think where this show seven episodes, I, I didn't think it ran too long. It was pretty compelling. You know, more or less like each hour of the flight from Dubai to London, more or less is an episode, give or take. It's pretty well paced. I would say the biggest gripe I think. It's probably the most common gripe you'd have with Hijack is that despite liking it, despite being very entertained and compelled the whole time, I'm definitely less compelled w- with the stuff outside of the, the flight, like the back on the ground. There ends up being a fair amount of subplots to Hijack. Um, they're all connected. You know, they're all revolving around this criminal group that is behind the hijacking and their motivations for that and the way they succeed. And pulling off this hijacking is how they basically blackmail people and threaten their families and stuff. You, you understand. But some of those beats are just not quite as interesting as just being up in the sky with Idris and the crew uh, being like in the high-stakes environment up there. It's certainly high-stakes on the ground. It's just not nearly as interesting or as um, refreshing. It doesn't feel as special. So, you know, when we learn about Idris's... Uh, son's mother, his estranged wife, that wife, uh, or the mother of his kid, has a new boyfriend who is a police detective, and that police detective happens to also be the ex of Archie Punjabi's character at the, uh, you know, in in, in the uh, English government. Like all of that, like like they don't spend a lot of time on it, but like we just kind of like don't need that much detail. I don't think there's also a lot of stuff going on with this criminal gang. Um, they send these like professional cleaning crews, cleaning in quotes, of course, these assassination groups to uh, to keep things in check and tie up their loose ends. And like, while that's harrowing, it's again, it's not nearly as interesting. Also, I think with hijack, there are some plot holes if you think about things. Nothing that detracts from the effectiveness of the plot or the the feeling you get watching the series. But I mean, there's definitely some notes to give. Like, for example, the police detective, you know, who's dating Idris's uh, ex-wife, he manages to go from, like, the English countryside all the way to downtown London to save Idris's son in the, in the span of one episode, span of a few minutes. Like, even with the sirens on, not the most plausible thing. There's some moments like that. Um, I did enjoy a lot of the stuff uh, with air traffic control and the English government in terms of how do they handle the situation? What do they do? Do they shoot down the plane? Uh, backing it up a few episodes from the finale, you have, I believe it was the Romanian government and Air Force threatening to take down the plane. All of that's really good. Archie Punjabi, always good. Um, you know, the, the, the Home Secretary and the Foreign Secretary, whatever the titles were in the English government, uh, they're back and forth and going over what decisions they can and can't make. Is there a choice to make? What do you do? That's all pretty compelling. Definitely taking some shots at the English prime minister, obviously an unnamed prime minister, but not ascribing much power or agency to the role to basically say, like, she'll just do what we tell her to do. Like, it's pretty funny. Um, I thought the hijackers up up in the sky were pretty interesting as as villains. Um, And watching the rest of the plane, you know, the people being hijacked them having to figure things out and 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 thwart the hijackers through secret messages and signals and just you know that that's all pretty fun again like you put yourself in in those shoes um yeah i think the end of episode six leading into episode seven the finale the end of episode six which actually has that really great twist where you realize that there's like some quote like sleeper agents up in the sky where the other hijackers didn't know that there was someone else on board that had something to do. This person, uh, Amanda, we learned her name. Amanda kills the pilot, domes him right in the head, and then takes control of the aircraft and locks the door. And like that's how the penultimate episode ends. Really, I think, awesome like twister, like ratcheting up the energy once again. Really great. Uh, again, spoilers. You know, I don't know why you listen to this if you didn't know, but when you watch the plane land, and I, I don't think there's much doubt that they would succeed. You know, like, especially, like, early on, all these guns being pointed at Idris Elba's face. It's like, I mean, I know he's not going to die. We know that. It's okay. But, like, really great plane crash, like, on the strip. Uh, I thought that was pretty good. 
uh, yeah, I mean, not a whole lot more to say. I don't think it's just it was, a, I think, a really solid uh, thriller. Uh, partially, I think, because it was unexpected. Partially because Idris Elba's presence and star power and just kind of the grace he has as a performer really fit the role of Sam Nelson and really fit the the role of carrying the series. So all that was a great match. And yeah, I think just high, the the hijack airplane thriller mini uh, you know subgenre just really ripe for compelling stuff a lot of talk about is there gonna be a hijack season two i think this was definitely an unexpected hit for everyone involved um obviously you could do a season two there are some loose ends with the criminal gang you know their leader one of their leaders escaped you know they they seem to be a, a well-planned organization um, and I actually, I, I was pretty compelled by the fact that their motivations for this was to do a, a bear raid on Kingdom Airlines and short that that airline stock. And then when this happens, the stock obviously goes in the complete gutter and they make all this money on the short. Pretty interesting like motivation, right? It wasn't as simple as, let's just free our criminal uh, leaders from prison. You know, I, I like that there was a little more to it. I guess there's more on the bone with that villain if you wanted Obviously, it'd be pretty contrived to have Idris Elba happen to be in another plane that gets hijacked. I imagine it would be a more convoluted reason that that happened with this gain, and they know who Sam is. So I imagine it'd be pretty mixed, messed up plot to get to that point. You could pull it off, though, because, I mean, a lot of people have compared hijack to 24, you know, and Idris in the Kiefer Sutherland role. I suppose you could find a way to do it, and I'm not necessarily opposed to it. Honestly, obviously, you'd have a whole new cast up in the sky. You could get some other actors, bigger name actors, up in the plane for the most part. There was no one too famous up there, you know? Um, so it's possible. I'm not necessarily asking for it, but I'm not opposed if it happens either. But let me know, how did you feel about Hijack? Are you looking for a season two? Or are you more ambivalent like me? Let me know what you thought. And for more TV reviews, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. What's up? Welcome back to Nostalgia. Dave here with a review of Winning Time Season 2 on HBO. Very excited for Winning Time to be back in our lives. I loved Season 1. Of course, it's the story of the Showtime Lakers, Magic Johnson, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, with a, I think, a really awesome mix of excellent casting, period detail, and like real like genuine, like strong TV filmmaking flair and production value. Love the show. Back for season two. Can't wait because there's a lot more to this story. You know, season one wrapping up with the Showtime Lakers winning their first championship in 1980. And of course, we know that this is just the beginning as the Lakers and Celtics, Magic and Bird, that rivalry is just at the surface, just at the beginning. So there's a lot to get into here. And season two doesn't really waste any time. Interestingly, though, it starts off with a flash forward all the way to 1984 NBA Finals Game 1, where the Lakers uh, steal a game from Boston in Boston. And it's like, huh, we're kind of skipping ahead a little bit. They immediately back us up four years, back to 1980, in the aftermath of the first Laker ring. And it's like, okay, so like it seems like we're building up to 84, so we're going to go through a few years now, skip some time, whereas Season 1 was really just about the build-up to 80, the first really about one real season. Seems like we're skipping ahead a little bit. I'm kind of interesting, interested why that is, because Winning Time as a series has the potential to be much more of an anthology. You know, if you want to skip ahead and leave the Showtime era behind, move on to, you know, the Kobe Gasol run, or of course Kobe Jack before that. Like, there's potential to switch up what Winning Time is. You know, it's on HBO. Seems like it's an expensive show to make. I'm... I'm I had in the back of my mind, I wonder if this is something like David Zaslav would, and Warren Bros. Discovery would love to like cut and like not continue. But hopefully HBO will protect the show and keep it going because there's a lot of meat on this bone. And I think it's done really well. You know, a lot of controversy with season one, with Jason Clark's portrayal of Jerry West. And in general, there's a lot of just talk about the accuracies that this show has. Of course, it doesn't present itself as a documentary. It does things for creative license. It makes composite characters, etc. It fledges a timeline. Of course, Jeannie Buss is much more involved in the show's timeline than she was in real life at the time with similar events. Yada, yada. It's fine. I find it very compelling. I'm cool with it. But I'll be interested to see if there's any like 
additional controversy about the show or if like it's just gonna be the same people kind of whining about the same stuff I'm not sure but i mean the core tenets remain though right like quincy isaiah as magic johnson is is spectacular you need to nail that casting because magic was such a big character obviously still to this day and they did that he's great john c Riley as jerry buss dr buss the owner of the lakers great awesome casting really nails it nails that persona that you know buzz dr buss had as a philandering but also really sharp businessman uh adrian brody really coming into his own pat riley with the flash forward in episode one you see the slicked back classic riley here the look we know um really like him uh tracy letts was jack mckinney in season one i don't think we're going to see him again obviously if the story is going but he was awesome Jason Siegel, though, really fun as Paul Weston. I don't know if these are accurate portrayals, but I don't really care because the show is really compelling to me. Hadley Robinson as Jeannie Buss. I really like her. Gabby Hoffman as Claire Rothman. Awesome. Solomon Hughes, also really great as Kareem. You know, again, like Magic, you had to nail how Kareem was done. A, a person who had so many multitudes to his life. And if you didn't nail that casting, Kareem would come off as a bit of a caricature. But I think they really kind of nailed that. Shout out Solomon Hughes for that. Molly Gordon's on this show, you know, kind of in the genie orbit part of the part of the series. I'm curious, like how involved she would be. I'm not really sure. Um, but obviously we know she's quickly rising, which theater camp and the bear season two. So if you get more of Molly Gordon, it'd probably be good for the show. We'll see. But um, and yeah, like the filmmaking, obviously it's a period show, which makes it look nice anyway, but you have like really cool, like, you know, switches of film stock and aspect ratio and like color grading and stuff. It's really stylized. It looks really awesome. Um, I'm really looking forward to the rivalry with the Celtics. You know, Michael Chiklis is Red Auerbach, who we saw back in season one. Larry Bird is really portrayed as this kind of like, uh, you know, dipping hick, uh, you know, uh, Midwestern white man. It's really funny. Like, I don't really care how accurate it is to Larry Bird. I, we know he did drink. I don't really care. It's funny. Like and obviously in the, in the flash forward scene at the beginning of this episode, they show uh, the Boston crowd is this rowdy, like mad, you know, mob, which is hilarious. Um, curious to see the dynamic with the Bus family portrayed more in season uh, two. Obviously, we know that the Bus boys, Jeannie's brothers, are going to be more involved. And I think anyone who knows the story knows that they were not uh, as competent as their father or their sister when it came to things of this nature. So interesting. Also like for NBA fans, it's really funny to hear like bus talk about like being ahead of the curve with like cable and ESPN in terms of like the, the, the mainstreamization and the blowing up uh, publicly of the NBA that's about to happen. And also the salary cap coming in and free agency changing and bus wanting to get ahead of, uh, the increase in player salaries and locking up his players with extensions. But of course the Lakers at this time had to actually figure out where the money was, the tangible money to make these payments. Like it's, it's, it's pretty interesting to see all that. Um, it's fun. Kareem has the kid. I think that um, I, mean, I believe that must be accurate, but yeah. Um, and season one, you know, said, you know, sorry, episode one of season two sets us right up with this, you know, 81 season where, Magic Johnson has, I believe, a knee injury and, like, devastating knee injury. And the Lakers now have to, uh, you know, right the ship or just hold on to the wheel until Magic can come back so they can hopefully get into the playoffs and then still make a championship run. And if you know what happened in that season, of course, Magic's recovery time, specifically, maybe this won't be suspenseful, but... I think it's just a really fun dramatization. And, you know, Quincy Isaiah being a ladies' man, as Magic, of course, was, it's pretty fun. I guess, like, one thing that's, like, kind of so-so for me is, like, Magic's, like, will will they, won't they, with his, uh, at this time in the show, a strange girlfriend, ex-girlfriend, Cookie. I think most people know that Magic Johnson ended up marrying and is still with his loving wife, Cookie. They have kids together, like, that's like not super suspenseful to me. I guess it's fine. I don't know. But yeah, I just really enjoy the show. And I feel like it's kind of odd that it's coming out in like the dog days of summer and mid-August amidst the writer's strike as well. So like 
feels like there's no buzz about this show. You know, like when it came out, season season one came out, it was like, you know, March, April time, I believe. Like definitely people were more locked in on new releases at the time. feels like it's kind of being sent out when there's not a lot of attention for it. So I hope that's not the case. And I hope that the ratings still deem it successful enough that they can keep the show going. Because I think this is a really a kind of endless potential with a show like this. It's just really enjoyable. And I'm also someone who doesn't care about the inaccuracies. So I just really enjoy the ride. But yeah, Winnie Time Season 2, I'm expecting it to be a lot of fun, even if maybe it won't be quite as fresh and new as Season 1 was, which is like a really like awesome like blast of like, wow, this is like a really like developed idea with all these things humming. Even if that won't feel as new this time around, I'm happy to still be in this world of you know the 80s, Lakers versus Celtics, NBA. Quite, quite fun. Let me know, how do you feel about the start of Wing Time Season 2? Or is there something you're looking for that for Season 2 that you can get in Season 1? And yeah, for more TV reviews, subscribe, and I'll see you next time. What's up, my nostalgia? Dave here with a review of Gran Turismo, the new video game adaptation film from PlayStation Productions. This film is also interesting because it's based on a true story, telling the uh, real-life story of Jan Marlborough, a English racer who like Jan in the film, is a Gran Turismo sim racer who ends up winning a competition and be actually becoming a real, genuine race car driver. And that's kind of the you know basis for a lot of creative liberty being taken, but that's the basis for a kind of underdog, rags-to-riches type you know sports story. Uh, of course, directed by Neil Blomkamp, who once upon a time tried to make a Halo movie. He's actually making a video game movie now, funny enough, and starring uh, you know two big name actors here: David Harbour, who plays a uh, former racer who ends up being like the trainer, like engineer for Jan as he as he tries to come up, and Orlando Bloom plays this Nissan like kind of marketing executive who is kind of the one who births this idea to recruit the best sim racers in the world and try and make a real genuine like racing team and make racing careers as a result. Fun premise. I think right off the bat, it's got to say like Harbor's awesome um, as this kind of gruff racer with some regrets. He's also, it's fun because he's very um, anti this idea. He doesn't believe in these sim racers, doesn't think they can hack it. And that comes across really well. Also nice to be with Orlando Bloom. I think a lot of people love Orlando Bloom, myself included. He hasn't been the most active or prolific in a while now, but he's just kind of really fun in this role as a kind of executive character. Uh, so yeah, I quite enjoyed that. I think what's my biggest gripe with the movie is Archie uh, Medekwe, who plays Jan. You know he, you know he was in Midsommar. He was in. He's been in some stuff, but I did not really care for his performance. I don't know if that's how it was on the script. Uh, that's how Jan is in real life, but I thought Archie was just kind of a bit of a wet noodle, a bit of a you know lack of a presence. He didn't emote very well to me. I thought he was a bit of a downer as your lead protagonist here. But the film itself, you know, it it, it it's quite formulaic and predict predictable in the sense you know how it's going to go. A lot of sports cliches that we 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 recognize, right? Despite all that. I think it's done like convincingly and like genuinely enough that it's like still a pretty fun story, fun time watching the come up. And I guess the fact that Jan is legitimately like an underdog in the sense that he's a sim racer trying to be a real racer. Obviously, sim racing doesn't prepare you for the physical demands of being in the car. And that's pretty interesting. You know, I think <laughs> there's a lot of like interesting cliches here. Like, we have not one but two photo finishes, just very unrealistic kind of thing. You have to leave a lot of, I think, uh, suspension of disbelief at the door, right? Like the way this goes, Jan, of course, wins the initial competition to for, against other GT, Gran Turismo, sim racer players. He wins that initial competition, obviously, and then progresses. And he's in, I believe, like Super GT series in Europe, driving like, you know, GTR cars. And it's cool to like go visit other tracks that like if you're a racing fan you would recognize like they go to Hockenheim in Germany they go to the Red Bull Ring, um, they go to the Nurburgring in Germany which is the scene of a uh, really big crash 
famous crash that really happened in Jan's life, although when it happens in the timeline of the film is completely different, which has been controversial to some. I think what's... Um, and, then, and then after all this happens, Jan ends up racing in the 24 hours of Le Mans. I feel like a lot of that you just have to like be willing to yada yada. Like a brand new racer basically jumps through multiple series like very, very quickly. You just have to like acknowledge that that's okay. And of course, his rivals on the track follow him to every one of these series and events. It's like it's a bit convenient. You if you know how like racing works and stuff, you might like recognize the um, uh, lack of like realistic uh, competition there. It doesn't matter. It doesn't track from the movie. It's fine. I think it's interesting though that like this film is positioning like um, this aversion to sim racing, and I guess maybe it makes sense because the way the story takes place, you know, we're talking about like over ten years ago when this story really happened, but nowadays it's almost coming at like a odd time because sim racing has honestly been embraced in the world of motorsport, right? You think about Formula One racers, like some of the best, the best in, in the game right now, people like Max Verstappen. Lando Norris, they sim race all the time and talk about how it helps them be real racers. Like that's that's where we're at. Where sim racing is a tool used by people that really race cars. Not to mention a way to just to learn tracks and stuff like that. So it's not the most like effective, I guess, piece of conflict if the story was taking place today. I guess because it's dated back in you know thirteen years ago ish, and the fact that. This actually is how it went with Jan. I guess that's okay. But that's something else I also noted. Also, it was kind of funny to me that like the main like villain, quote unquote, you know, Jan's main rival uh, in terms of on on the track is uh, I forget his name. He's uh, Kappa, Nicholas Kappa, and he's like clearly like a pay driver, like really from a really wealthy family. Seems to not be English. It's perhaps a nod to like Nikita Mazepin in F one or something like that. He seems to have like all this like clout and like popularity from like the press and stuff like that, and it's like also not a realistic um, portrayal of how pay drivers are actually viewed by you know the racing community. That kind of stood out to me. Also, I thought it was really funny that Jan's parents, his dad played by Joe Manhanchu, and his mom is played by Jerry Hallowell, aka Ginger Spice from the Spice Girls, aka the wife of the Red Bull F1 team's team principal Christian Horner. Jerry Hallowell is a Formula One wag. And now she's actually in a movie about racing. It's not like she's a, a, a prolific actor. She doesn't act that often. That was kind of funny to me. Um, I love that so specifically, like, Jan's way to, like, calm himself down before a race is to listen to Kenny G, of course, the famous uh, musician. thought that was really funny. Really nice callback to how that's uh, brought back in the film in the third act. Um, I think overall, Blomkamp, who obviously... I was a gigantic fan of when District 9 came out. He hasn't had quite the career I think we all expected him to. You know, some stuff that has its merits, like Elysium, but nothing has come close to District 9. Daniel Blomkamp, though, does a pretty good job of filming the racing, you know, the action of it. I think it really progresses. There's some early Act 1 stuff that's a bit of a snoozer, right? Like, the movie doesn't really take off and take off until Jan gets to the Gran Turismo Academy and gets into the swing of the sports competition stuff that's, like, the heart of the film. The early driving where he's driving his dad's car that doesn't look too good but like all the stuff on track is actually pretty credible there's some fun like drone shots to really like speed you up and it's cut in, i think a pretty like solid way like i thought neil did a pretty good job him and you know his uh dp and whatnot um the big crash that happens at the nurburgring where jan goes airborne and crashes and a, kills a spectator tragically which is how it really happened in real life that is filmed, I think, in a really awesome way. That looks crazy. Um, there's been some controversy where how that's portrayed, where, where it's basically positioned in the film as a motivating factor for Jan to get over the hump and become a real racer. And it was placed in a different part of the story than it really happened. In real life, that incident where Jan went airborne at the Nürburgring and the spectator was killed from the crash, that happened years after Jan podiumed at Le Mans. It was not motivation for Jan to stick it out and win or podium at Le Mans. So that's a bit of a change. I don't know if it's like super egregious, but some people have said it's in poor taste, which I can understand. Um, You know, this is the 
third release from PlayStation Productions this year. Of course, they started off last year with Uncharted with Tom Holland. And since then, this year, we got on this TV front, The Last of Us on HBO, and recently, Twisted Metal on Peacock. And now we have Gran Turismo on the big screen. We know there's some other stuff in the works, like God of War, but nothing imminent. But PlayStation Productions seems to be uh, kicking off, and much like how Mattel is raiding their toy box post-Barbie, PlayStation realizes they have a vast library of IP to exploit. And I really wasn't expecting Gran Turismo as a video game adaptation to actually have the game Gran Turismo be front and center in the movie. It's largely a big ad for Gran Turismo. Like, they literally go to Polyphony, the developer of the game in Tokyo, and go to the studio and talk about the merits of the game. And the uh, the head of the studio is in the film, and the play by an actor, and the actual head of the studio has a cameo in the film, too. Like, in a sense, you could see this like big brand management. The PlayStation logos are everywhere. Gran Turismo as a name is everywhere. They make sure to show you some sim rigs to get make you want to buy it. Like, there's some brand stuff going on for sure. That being said, I still was kind of surprised that like the name Gran Turismo would actually be like really like named like the Gran Turismo we understand. It's like part of the film. Kind of interesting. Um, yeah, this has actually been push back a few weeks not officially going wide till august 25th it's had a few weeks of like sneak peek screenings i think part of that is due to the strike but also because getting a little more breathing room from barbenheimer probably not the worst thing right now for other movies trying to make some cash so all good should be interesting to see how it performs i really do not under not have a good feel for what that tracking would be um, but it's also not a movie that like I need a sequel from, for sure. This was a classic closed-loop type thing, and I think we'd all be probably more invested in some of the more uh, big-name, dramatic PlayStation stories to be adapted, like Ghost of Tsushima or Horizon or God of War, etc. So probably the last we see of Gran Turismo on the big screen for some time, but honestly, pretty pretty solid effort. You know, if you get past the brand stuff, you get past the cliche and the formula. It's a pretty fun time. Looks pretty nice. So yeah, Gran Turismo, let me know. What did you think of the movie? Did you feel like it was an effective adaptation if such a thing can exist with a video game movie these days? And for more movie reviews, subscribe. And I'll see you next time. All right, that's going to do for the pod this week. Next week, we have definitely a heavier hitter coming, Ahsoka. The premiere on Disney Plus Star Wars series. Cannot wait. The trailers look fantastic. And also a new DC superhero movie in Blue Beetle. And some other stuff as well, such as the comedy film Strays, new music. Going to get into that. Make sure you subscribe. YouTube.com slash NostalgiaPod. Linktree.com slash NostalgiaPod. See the link below for the Best of 2023 Spotify playlist as well. Make sure you hit all those links. Let me know it's good. And I'll see you next week. Yeah.